It was during the casting process for The Last Picture Show when Sybil Shepherd was first brought to Bogdanovich's attention. He and his wife, Polly Platt, picked Shepard out from the cover of a magazine, with Platt in particular noting the devious sexuality she possessed, which suited perfectly the role of J.C. Farrow. Her promiscuous nature would prove potent off-screen as well, much to Bogdanovich's unexpected delight and Platt's heartbroken chagrin. The affair between Bogdanovich and Shepard led to a bitter divorce between the director and his creative partner, signaling with it a major shift in the overall quality of his output as well. They severed ties completely after completing Paper Moon, freeing Bogdanovich to collaborate with his new muse for the first time since his sophomore feature. Initially, Bogdanovich wanted his good friend Orson Welles to direct Shepard in the adaptation of Henry James's 19th century romance novel, Daisy Miller, but when the elder filmmaker deferred, Bogdanovich took up the project himself. He said in hindsight that he regretted making the picture, not because it was bad, reviews were generally favorable at the time, but because the material was unlikely to, and ultimately didn't, resonate with audiences. Its lackluster showing at the box office shuttered his new production studio, inviting the Hollywood press to scrutinize both him and Shepard with unforeseen hostility. This wave of criticism reached a fever pitch with Bogdanovich's next film, another throwback to the kind of classic films Bogdanovich loved and found success in reviving before. At Long Last Love was an ode to the early era of movie musicals, in which decadence and charm worked to avail the masses of the sadness and turmoil pervading the country at the heights of the Great Depression. With its Cole Porter soundtrack and Art Deco-inspired sets, the film was set to recreate the magic of the old Astaire and Rogers films. Notices for At Long Last Love were utterly abysmal, invoking such inexplicable wrath from both critics and audiences that Bogdanovich's entire career was almost completely derailed on the spot. Bogdanovich himself was personally put on blast, with reviews citing his arrogance and his affair with Shepard as evidence of vanity. The film was rightfully criticized for its mishandling of the musical elements, pointing out the egregious results of casting stars like Burt Reynolds for their names over their vocal skills. In retrospect, the film isn't quite the train wreck the trade papers made it out to be at the time, and in fact has a rather niche following thanks to recent re-evaluations. Its lack of availability on both physical media and streaming services, though, means its redemptive arc has yet to fully blossom. After two successive flops, Bogdanovich's clout had dropped significantly within the industry. He struggled to find proper financing for his next venture, and when he tried to convince the studio that, as with previous films, this next film should be in black and white, they balked. They also rejected his initial casting choices, including Shepard again in a leading role. Hollywood had become completely embittered with the dynamic couple and saw the repudiation of their recent collaborations as a referendum on their popularity and success. Nevertheless, Bogdanovich plunged headlong into Nickelodeon, an adventurous chronicle depicting the burgeoning era of movies in which plucky bands of creative upstarts formed the nucleus of the medium while battling against the tyranny of monopolistic patent companies. While not a flop, it did little to reignite Bogdanovich's career and with production troubles straining both his creative energies and personal relationships, the once inimitable director threw up his hands and quit for three years. Since Hollywood had done such a thorough job of roasting him over the coals, Bogdanovich was wise to make his next project as far away from there as possible. Saint Jack is a story about a magnanimous pimp working brothels in Singapore, with Ben Gazzara shining in the lead role. Bogdanovich's reprieve from movie making and the system as a whole appears to have been quite healing, as St. Jack is largely considered an artistic return to form. 
The confident, charismatic direction behind the lens certainly recalls the self-assurance once associated with the youthful auteur, but its whirlwind-like approach to narrative and structure made it a difficult sell in 1979, leaving critics dazzled but audiences estranged. Nonetheless, Bogdanovich had regained his creative footing and was once again reaching a crest in his career. He fell in love yet again upon returning home and was set to make what he would later consider the uncontestable favorite of his own movies. No one could have predicted the shocking tragic turn his life was about to take. Welcome back to The Twin Geeks 149. This is our Peter Podonovich. Welcome back, David. <laughs> his, his name is, is very mouthy. It's hard to say a lot. <laughs> it is. It's very mouthy. Um, he's very mouthy. Um, he is. He is. I've been watching lots and lots of interviews with Bogdanovich because he's, unlike me, so compelling to listen to for, for lengthy amounts of time. Yeah, I mean, he's such a wise and um, student of the old Hollywood, and he combines so much of what made those uh, old directors so fascinating to listen to. He's a great impressionist, too. That's yeah, always he's, interesting. He's just really good at telling stories. Like, again, like telling the same stories even over and over again. He just does such a, uh, a compelling job of them. They're so entertaining to watch and listen to. And, and the voices certainly help, but even when he's not doing spot-on impersonations of any and everyone out of old Hollywood. You know, he's still just stringing these these beautiful yarns. This is our second of the series. We're encountering four more films. We're wading into um, waters that I'm unfamiliar with entirely. So these yeah. are all new for me. The, these were all new. I think everything is new for me for here on out. And I've got more mm. spotty knowledge. I, I'd seen... Everything in this block, except for our first film uh, over the past couple of years. And I was aware uh, that th this is also, again, kind of as the intro indicated, where things start to go downhill for, for Bogdanovich. But uh, we, we find as well that it, it was really like the trajectory of his downfall was a bit overreported in its time. I don't, it's definitely nothing quite as lofty as the heights in the, the first four films, but nothing tragically awful either sadly sudden but it there was a feeling that all of hollywood was waiting for bogdanovich to go down yeah. there was a lot of resentment around those relationships as you highlighted in the intro yeah it, it, in some ways the the outside story of bogdanovich's career is almost more interesting in, than some of like the films themselves mm -hmm. and so the ability to tell that story in conjunction with the films themselves is is something i'm excited about as well because it is such a compelling you know story compelling trajectory for him as a as a person of life you know along with the movies which provide us entertainment and conversation this is the last episode that's really i mean charted waters as far as what other media has done and 
as far as people have followed his story and reported on it. We have a couple more in the next one, but uh, yeah, yeah. But the, then again, that's when everything just just drops yeah. off. And, and again, part of what the impetus for this project was was to actually tell the whole story. Mm-hmm. We're it's almost like we're creating a series of documentaries about um, Peter Bogdanovich in a way. Um, um, podcast documentaries uh, telling the story movie by movie and with intros and rankings. Um, so we're bringing up the old guard and uh, what do we have first? What's our first movie? Uh, the first movie is Daisy Miller from 1974. Uh, this was the last film of the production company that he started with Francis Ford Coppola and William Friedkin. Who was the, the director's company? They made three films. Uh, first was Paper Moon. Then Coppola did The Conversation, and then th- they did uh, Daisy Miller here, and then William Freakin pulled out because he didn't like Daisy Miller. Freakin didn't get any movies in in nope. the deal. No, nope. he, <laughs> he didn't make any movies in the director's company. I'd be so interested in what what he would have made within that deal too. Yeah, I don't know. He just, from the sounds of it, from what I hear from what Bugnov just said, he just sounds, it, it, it sounds very much like Freakin as well, just <laughs> be like half-assedly in it and then just decide he didn't want to do anything with it anymore after he didn't like Daisy Miller, like he didn't like the idea of doing it, but because of the deal they struck, Bogdanovich, you know, could just have four million to do it, so mm. he did, and, and then Freakin's like, I'm out. And it it had to be successful, right? With that kind of budget, it's still Daisy Miller must still worked, right? I mean, I've, I don't have the numbers on it, so I can't say in terms of mm-hmm. like box office. Critically, it was not like panned. It wasn't badly received, but it was less received. There's a, there's a great story that he that Bogdanovich tells about it. They they met with one of his producers after the screening, and he asked the guy. He says, "Oh, so how'd you like it?" He's like, eh, "It's all right." He's like. And Bogdanovich is like, it's all right. And he's like, yeah, you're Babe Ruth and you just bunted. <laughs> uh, that's a good way to put it. Um, yeah. I like Henry James. I like the idea of Henry James, maybe. Um, I know that in junior high, I had like a novella double book with this and The Turn of the Screw, which I am more fond of. And I didn't remember this very well. So uh, it felt fresh to me, despite I'm, having read at some point. I'm very unfamiliar with, Henry James, aside from aside from a couple of adaptations I've seen, The Heiress is quite a great film. Um, but otherwise, uh, th- this genre of film, the, these nineteenth-century um, period dramas, are not typically my jam. And this is a really good piece of evidence as to why I, f- <laughs> I found it very, very stale, very, very dull, very kind of unmotivated, very frivolous, very uninterested in like exploring that frivolity even like I, I didn't feel like it really questions too much of it i think the male lead was very bland he doesn't have much chemistry with civil shepherd yeah civil barry shepherd. brown he he's kind of playing ryan o'neill in a way it's it's very strange but he, he doesn't quite get away with that mm-hmm. and one of the other things Bogdanovich said as well is that he felt like the film came a little too early because there was not long after like a wave of films like this adaptations uh in this vein and people were all over it then but not when not when daisy miller came out as much and it's i can understand fall. yeah it's it's fallen by the wayside uh i don't think it's bad 
I think it's very well made. I think it's shot very nicely. I think, you know, it's, it was shot in location in, on, in Rome. It's very nice. Very pretty looking. Um, but I don't know. I just, just don't find any substance in it. I don't find anything worthy of exploring in it. And I think that's endemic of the kind of film it, it tends to be. And that's not to say that these films can't be, you know, very explorative, very introspective. But translating that from the novel to film usually is 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 a very dry process, I find. And, and few filmmakers pull it off successfully. Yeah, so much of those literature of that time, a lot of books being written specifically for targeted demographics around romances and upper class and uh, how relationships and gender work together. Um, and this one pretty light on like actual textual things we could analyze. There's a- yeah. In terms of exploring that, because there, there's the ideas of like exploring the aspects of uh, Americanism in particular, because mm -hmm. you've got a, a, that kind of like conclave of expatriates hanging out in, in Italy and touring up around in Europe and stuff. Um, and, and kind of examining the, the, the characteristics of them and how they stand out from society and, and how they don't adhere to the customs and the traditions of the old world. Those are all elements that you could ascribe to the, the text of Daisy Miller, but uh, mm -hmm. it, it never really feels like the film is exploring it. It just kind of feels like the, the present elements that I as the audience am grasping at to try and find something worthy of, you know, kind of mulling over. There's that uh, repeated idea of uh, maybe I've been um, living abroad for too long. Maybe I'm disconnected from people and the way of life that's outside Italy. That's uh, one of the um, primary ideas that's working behind the characters. There's a, a moment early on where it feels like it's going to be a screwball thing. I think the first 10 minutes are especially where Daisy Miller shines and feels like it's uh, dabbling in a lot of wordplay. It feels like a Bogdanovich movie. Um, I really enjoy it. I love the kid. Uh, bang. The, the kid the kid did get me, which I, I find surprising you say, because again, every time you say, we say that you say you don't like kid actors, but it only comes up when you find a kid actor you liked. <laughs> yes. But the, the screwball dialogue really threw me off at first. I was like, this feels really incongruent. Like, it kind of put a, a weird taste in my mouth in the beginning, unlike your reaction. But I was it, charmed, it yeah. It, it just kind of said, like, I, I guess because I was expecting something more you know, uh, setting appropriate. And it just felt really out of uh, place. But I, I guess it could, again, it, it could have worked if it was like reflexive about the the, the setting or the, the customs of the time, but it, it really just felt like a kind of empty presentation for the most part. It just felt like because Bogdanovich was doing Daisy Miller, that's what he would do. And I, I mean, I, I kind of like that. I, I like the love as a mystery. I love how mysterious Sybil Shepherd is as Daisy Miller, but also uh, such a loud mouth. She's mouthy too. I mean, uh, she's got uh, talks a mile a minute and says the most peculiar things and uh, just tries to uh, put everyone offhand and uh, throw them off a little bit and keep them guessing about her intentions and what she wants and whether she's out wandering with gentlemen in Italy or um, kind of misguiding our um, our narrator here at the at the beginning we uh we never quite know what she's in it for and why she's doing it till the end so there is like a 
a mystery of love aspect that I like, not quite like a Rebecca or a Daphne du Maurier, uh, but, um, but still nicely Henry James in a way that I respect or admire, like watching. You, you think it's a film you'd come back to? Oh, yeah, best? yeah. I'd watch yeah. it with my wife. She didn't quite get to see most of it, but she's very curious. So I, I see a, at least one more watch potential with her. Um, yeah, it's just, it's really like, like almost textbook definition, middle of the road for me. It's like, it it's like on a, on a surface level, I'm like, this is a well-composed film, but emotionally it does nothing for me. I'm, I'm unmoved by this in any capacity. <laughs> and again, part of it is just that this is the kind of film that's inherently not of uh, interest to me, but it doesn't overcome that barrier, you know, in terms of its, you know, prodding of this or, or, or kind of like elevating, you know, finding the the nugget within the material of, of value there. Uh, I don't feel like it really captures uh, the essence of what the story wants to get at. And so all of the, the nicely framed elements uh, kind of just an, an empty vessel for me. I feel like the um, misadventures of the semi-rich and the jet set and the uh, parties and um, uh, kind of almost costume drama nature of it isn't really quite your thing. So, mm-hmm. um, it, but, it, but similarly, the the high society jet set frivolous partying of the the next film he made is totally my thing. <laughs> okay, you want to go into it? Uh, do you have anything more to say about Daisy? Again, I re- I really have very little to say about Daisy Miller. Well, if you like if you like nineteenth century costume dramas, you'll probably find something in Daisy Miller. It's not an unheralded classic. It's just pretty well made, interesting, I guess. I think a mark above average, and uh, obviously a parallel warning us about the imminent COVID that that's coming with the with the fever. Um. <laughs> bit bit of a stretch, but works you tied it in so after that um bogdanovich kind of got back to like the because obviously daisy miller bit of a departure you know he's working a bit outside of his mo so he dives right into what he really really loves and he makes a throwback to the early era of movie musicals a kind of mashup of uh, RKO's teaming of the, the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers and the early, very first musicals made by Ernst Lubitsch with Marie Chevalier and Jeanette McDonald. And at Long Last Love, uh, which is entirely composed of Cole Porter songs, because he was such a big fan of Cole Porter, it was a you know big personal endeavor for him and it was crazy ambitious, I would say, for its time. Really? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I would say it's very ambitious in terms of uh, why musical. <laughs> because it's you what's know, the ambition though? Well, there's a huge you know production design to it all. It's a attempt to revive a long dead genre in in the midst of the 70s. Um, before Scorsese tried to do the same with New York, New York, and also fell Ugh. on his face. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's also um, he wanted to do it like they did in the early, early days by recording everything on set live with live accompaniment with the actors really singing as they were acting, which is probably the biggest mistake he made for the film. There was a very no, nice... No, I, uh, I'll say the second biggest mistake. First okay. biggest mistake is casting Sybil Shepard and, and Burt Reynolds, who... Because they can't sing and they do a disservice to Cole Porter. 
Yeah, they really they do. don't dance really either. I mean, no. <laughs> what is, what's their use here? And that's a complaint we have about modern movie musicals too. Of course, people keep casting stars instead of singers, <laughs> singers and, dancers. and dancers. Yeah, but but I'll say that I like them still as actors in the movie. Like I think Burt Reynolds is really funny in the part. I like him here when he's not singing because he's he's definitely by far the worst singer. And I can't begrudge him for taking the part <laughs> either because. I would also like if someone asked me if I wanted to star in a Cole Porter musical, I would take that that opportunity, even if I was going to make a fool of myself. Because yeah. that sounds like a lot of fun. So I'm glad he got to to live out that dream and do that. But it's a worse movie because of it, and it, it's yes. an, it's an unsalvageable aspect of the movie. One of one of the interesting facets of the film's history is that it's been recut over time, and the version we see now isn't the v- version they saw in theaters originally uh and it was recut not only by by bogdanovich but it was recut secretly by someone at the studio years down the road who was a a cole porter fan that kind of pieced it together and bogdanovich liked that cut even more which cut did i see i i have no idea because you you made a big boo-boo and you watched (laughs) you you said that there's like this uh very nice blu-ray restoration of it and uh so I watched a version on YouTube, which, you know, like when you turn like an old TV out and you have like the flash at the middle of the screen, that's just like a present like fixture on the screen, like a big bulb blown out in the middle and a very saturated and strange looking. Which is which is awful, because I think one of the film's greatest strengths is its set design, is the, uh, the, the visual elements of the film. It really is like he made a film that has the air and the style of a black and white film in color, in vibrant color at that. You know, the Art Deco sets are all beautiful recreations of the style of the time. The costuming is really great. And there is a beautiful Blu-ray transfer of it. It was an Amazon exclusive Blu-ray that was put out in like 2012 or something, I think. Mm -hmm. It was such a limited run that you cannot get your hands on it now without paying an arm and a leg. Uh, And and, and, and so even like in the rental place I go to, they had a a bootleg DVD when I saw it originally. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and it was like unwatchable. They're, like so many versions of the film that are out there are, are just unwatchable. They're, they're so ugly looking. And it's a shame because that had, can have a, such a severe impact on how you see a film that you can, sometimes it blinds you to the, the, the greater elements, even though you obviously can appreciate a film, even in less than stellar circumstances. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm definitely one who believes that, how a film is seen and the quality of it can have a major impact on your overall impression. I was generally, I would generally say that best possible quality is, I mean, the ideal, obviously, but uh, just a misstep, just checking out on YouTube, thinking it was one of those that we had. So, <laughs> no, it's a, uh, yeah, not everything uh, available on YouTube is, is good, you know, unfortunately, nice, nice yeah. that it's there, but. This, this is why preservation efforts are so important because, you know, there's only so much we as the individuals can do, you know, like for just up, people uploading stuff to YouTube. I appreciate it, but I wish, like, you weren't recording it off of your television or something. Yeah. You know. And, uh, well, even though the, the leads can't sing or dance, we do have Madeline Kahn, who I really like, and yep. she's great in it. So there's Ma- Madeline that. Madeline Kahn, always, always a treasure. She's so wonderful and Glad that, that Bogdanovich really brought her to the the foray. You know, I like the, the I like the primitive man bit. That that part's charming. 
Mm -hmm. And I also, I really like uh, Dulio Depre uh, as the Italian character mm -hmm. uh, for a couple reasons. Number one, he can actually sing. He does a really good job with all of his songs. And I like it specifically as an inversion and an updating of the Italian caricature stereotypes that you saw in a lot of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers films. That was kind of a present icky element to a number of their, their best films, and Bogdanovich rehabilitates that staple here in, in a really uh, affirming way. I think I, I, I like his character a lot. And I like the plot of the film generally. I like it as this kind of mismatch, this, you know, uh, this bedroom hopping in the style of a, of a Lubitsch film from the 30s and such. And and I like the presence of the songs. There are too many songs, though, I'll say. It's like, especially yeah, 16 the whole Cole Porter the, songs. The beginning is like four back-to-back -back songs introducing each character. And it starts off on a bad note because it has Madeline Kahn singing a song drunk in the scene. Mm -hmm. And so the slurring just looks like a bad performance instead of, you know, a part of the you know, the scene, it's not a, a strong start to it. It takes, I think, the, the film a good 20 minutes to really get going. And then once it does, it's able to have a lot of fun. I think it's a very fun film. I think it's shot with a lot of charm and love and, and care for the films it's homaging. I think it does a really good job of incorporating all of that. And it, it's an homage in a way that few films are really able to embrace fully. But it's undeniably clunky. It's it's imperfect in in so many unforgivable ways. <laughs> this is but, the one time I think I'll agree with the um, critics and the harshness on Bogdanovich that everyone just wanted to see him fail. Like it just feels I, like a party for rich people to me. So I don't I, <laughs> I don't appreciate it as much I as you do. I, I don't know how you can say that after like the same kind of frivolity and, and high class bourgeois shit with Daisy Miller and say, oh, but contemporary or, you know, like 1930s, you know, bourgeois, that's like untenable. I think because it's not the 1930s anymore when he's making it, like it doesn't it's not match the, his it's era not the 19th anymore. century either when he's making Daisy Miller. But mm. <laughs> yeah, but no, I, I do think there's a. But he's making uh, a, like a modern movie. I mean, there's a kernel of truth to that. You, you shared with me Pauline Kael's review from the time, which was characteristically harsh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I do think she kind of honed in on something there and that there there's a reason that these movies had their time and they faded out, that they really, you know, resonated with an audience then, but don't necessarily now. And even though those films endure, you know, the, the recreation of them isn't necessarily going to strike the same chord and you're appealing to an audience that has a lot of vested interest in that. And, and I think that's another thing that did a long last love. I think that it doesn't hold up as a movie in and of itself. If you don't already have an affection and an awareness and appreciation for the films that Bogdanovich does here, then a lot of its elements are going to be very lackluster. Too. Yeah, and even if you did, like the, the purpose and like, the making it for an audience in the 1930s is a lot different than the 1970s. Um, it doesn't yeah. move quite like one of those. It doesn't it's, sound as good as one of those. The dancing's not as good. It's not like, uh, yeah. it's not on bar with the, the best so of the 1930s and 40s. If you, if you compare it with his other, you know, homage, his other, you know, recreation of an old genre from the 1930s and, and screwball comedies with What's Up Doc, whereas that one is a is a seamless and sleek, uh, updating of the genre. Mm -hmm. uh, At Long Last Love is a clunky 
uh, version of that. <laughs> and and I think, again, I, I love its embrace of it and its charm greatly appeals to me, but the execution, you know, really could have been better in a lot of ways. And I think Hubris has a lot to do with it. I think his decision yeah. to record live on there was a, was a big mistake. Uh, and I think it, you know, that only accentuates the lackluster performances because that's not something they could punch up in the recording booth, you know, and yeah, and obviously that issue as well. The miscasting is just a, a, a big mistake that you can't undo even in the editing room. It's and too, I'd, too late at that point. <laughs> I'd never try to align with uh, Kale's more uh, <laughs> uh, grimy uh, belittling reviews of directors where it feels like she's just trying to tear down a person. Like a lot of her Bogdanovich criticism is a pretty straight line. And I don't feel that way about Bogdanovich, but uh, I also kind of detest that approach where uh, you're trying to make the director look stupid or you're trying to find like why they're less of a person than the next director. It's ugly and in, horrid. In the case of Bogdanovich, I'm sure it was kind of even more intentionally personal because they had a bit of a back and forth exchange when she first wrote the the Raising Kale, uh, Raising Cain mm. uh, piece because Bogdanovich was the one to directly call her out and address with his own, you know, rebuttals about the, the authorship of Cain. Uh, so, I, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if there was definitely a, a bit more venom than even her usual amounts. I couldn't, that. yeah, I couldn't, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't have that kind of venom for a yeah. director. I wouldn't want it. I, I understand that these are all movies and uh, nobody's lives or jobs should be impacted by a poor performance. I should never say that a director should never make a movie again is kind of my line in reviewing. Yeah, no, that's, that's heinous, but... Uh, that's how everyone felt about Bogdanovich at the time. He was the top of the world, you know. He it, it really is now kind of hard for us to imagine just how prolific he was and and how jealous everybody was of his success at the time, and why everyone wanted to see him fall flat on his face, like which he, which he did. Like Billy Wilder famously saying, "The quirks were popping all over town when a Bogdanovich movie failed." Uh, yeah. Everyone was ready for the demise. Too ready, I think. I think they should have appreciated and embraced him, which yeah. doesn't always happen in a movie's time or a director's time. And, uh, well, it takes us it going back. Yeah, and you see it coming along now, and particularly in the case of Long Last Love. It has a cult following. It's got its niche appeal. If it was made more, more available, I think even more people would appreciate it. Again, especially because if you're watching a shitty version, then that's only going to impact your, <laughs> you know, middling quality of, uh, opinion of the film even more. I did scrub uh, through. The production yeah. design is much more handsome than I, I was led to believe. So. The, the first time I had a lot of mixed feelings watching okay. it, but I was, I was ultimately like, I enjoyed myself. I thought this was fun. And I, and I thought that would be probably the end. The second time I was, I was taken a lot more by it. I was prepared for what was going to be bad so i was willing to accept it right away and so some of the better elements really stuck out to me and i really enjoyed it even more and i'm like uh oh i think i'm falling in love with this movie <laughs> yeah by the primitive man stuff i started getting on board with the this could just be a fine movie i could i could uh, respect what it does right and yeah. um admit what it doesn't do well and i come away with you know middle of the road it's fine yeah, with me there's, just, there's there's lots of things lots of things it doesn't do right i, yeah. I also think about the the party scene, the uh, uh, well, did you ever the the song, the Cole Porter song, which uh, comes from another musical he did, uh, High Society, mm -hmm. and that's a Gene Kelly film with Sinatra and um, 
than Crosby. Hard and to match that. They're the two who sing the song. Well, even in that cut, like it's and they do a great vocal performance, but their performance within that number is very stagnant, like mm. physically. I remember that that was something that impressed me when I watched the movie. But it's kind of the reverse for Long Last Love, where there's a lot happening in the scene. They're kind of going all over the place. They're they got this big like choreography around the room, uh, you know, and interacting with all these people. But the singing of the song is so bizarre and, and dull it and, and like 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 just very like like overly exaggerated uh, mm -hmm. but there's a couple of songs that are you know good that i enjoy um and and the other problem is just going up against great like because i think the other big mistake is that he reuses songs he's done before like his his implementation of you're the top I mm -hmm. think is, is is a is a poor choice that he set himself up for for failure. Not just because you're going up against the voices of Ethel Merman as the originator, you know, doing it for the show. But you know, even if people don't remember that far back <laughs> in the '30s, he just used it for the intro in What's Up Doc with Barbara Streisand singing it. Right. And now you've got Sybil Shepherd like forcibly trying to eke out those notes. Oh, <laughs> Uh, there's there's like four or five numbers that actually work for me, but four or five out of sixteen isn't isn't yeah. great work. But it's yeah, but but the songs themselves, even when they're poorly performed, I still generally enjoy them because Cole Porter was just great at what at writing pop tunes. Yeah, and like I said, the the set designs are wonderful, and I like the comedy a lot. I think there's very good comedy. In it I think still. whereas. That's, Whereas I could go back and respect like a 30s musical, I'm not necessarily looking for directors to keep referencing it or keep making them. So I see why you could like it and how I couldn't. Yeah, but like at the same time, I'm dreading that Astera biopic. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. It's it, it really just depends. You know, it depends on what you put in. And I, I appreciate this because Bogdanovich has the same level of affection for those films as I do. It appreciates the, you know, the artistry of a, a kind of, frivolous musical the next movie also sort of made within your interests more also my interests yes yeah yeah I, I mean honestly if if we're being realistic here Bogdanovich is the filmmaker that I would be if if I was a director if you could make things you'd reference the past a lot and work off like a hot scene model of um with that you'd consult with Orson Welles is would be your dream I mean who, who doesn't want that that sounds uh, yeah. like I mean I want that <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so Nickelodeon was not a project that Bogdanovich was as invested in. Um, Shame, I'm invested more. It's good. It's a it's a good movie, and I think uh, kind of underrated in terms of you know his overall filmography here, with less caveats than in the cases of something like At Long Last Love. Um, I think it's just genuinely a good movie from start to finish. It's just that it wasn't a project that he had his eyes on and yeah. he, he knew he wanted to make a film about the silent era, but uh, he didn't exactly have this in mind. And then, you know, when it kind of landed in his lap, uh, he was kind of ushered into it and he made a lot of compromises that he was unhappy with. He, he wanted to cast different people than he was forced to cast. Um, Maybe that's some... okay for Bogdanovich actually. Yeah, and it's okay. I, I kind of wonder, like he wanted, John Ritter in mm. uh, w one of the main roles. I, th I think it was um, Ryan O'Neill's role ultimately. And okay. the studio said no, and they put him in a smaller role instead. They put him in as the cameraman. Um, and he wanted Sybil again, and that was probably smart for the studios to stop him because he just wanted to cast her in everything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I mean, he works with him. Like, if, if Sybil doesn't have chemistry and doesn't work as, as an actor, at least Bogdanovich's camera also always works on her. Yeah, yeah, but it was very, very overtly just, like, like vanity at this yeah. point. But also, at the same time, I understand. It's like, you want to make movies with your partner, you know? Yeah, why, like, why, why would you want to do that? I see how that would create more resentments. But when yeah, he does the, that. The time, yeah. like when your last two films you made with her just, you know, completely like, you know, fumbled, mm-hmm. uh, are, are the studios really going to let you try for a third? <laughs> right. Um, the last picture show, though, doesn't seem to like cater to what I've always seen in film about like the silent eras. Like it's it's so early, like it's so much like the. Did you mean Nickelodeon? Oh, what did I say? Last last picture picture show. Show. <laughs> yeah uh nickelodeon doesn't seem to like cater to the old ideas that i've usually seen film about like the silent era it it's not talking about like the tours or anything it's more about like making these small motion pictures in the patent wars which well, is a historical background that's more interesting for me yeah it's kind of it's right before the movies become the movies like hollywood doesn't exist yet there it's literally the pioneers trucking out into California, escaping from patent companies, trying to shut them down and destroy their equipment and making tiny little films on the fly, just, you know, like, like in these maverick little productions and putting them out and selling them for five cents. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a spirit of, of pluck and creative, you know, ingenuity to it that I think is a really enthralling thread like like it's this it's this theme that i can really connect with with the the kind of uh the the spirit of all of these this band because it is it does feel like a whole thing like you've got a central director here played by ryan o'neill but he doesn't feel like the lone creative champion of it by any means it's everybody pitching in everybody contributing ideas and trying to control the madness presiding <laughs> over accidents as as once said i really enjoy that he's such a um he's not trying to be the director he gets the phone call to become the director and the film's just very much in the spirit of those old silent movies is uh kind of just filming the catastrophes that happen with him trying to direct the movies uh which is just a lot of chaos. And I, I think the best exemplification of it is the scene, which is kind of advertised in the poster with the, the hot air balloon. Mm-hmm. It's a big, big set piece involving that and a train and then just trying to like keep up with it and then just like kind of like orchestrate it to kind of cohere into a, a kind of narrative, you know, climax, which which they do. And then once they got that, they're like, now we got to write a story around this. Okay, how <laughs> yeah. do we get to the air balloon? How where's the train come from? <laughs> And then there's the thing with like the patent companies uh, screwing and editing together those parts. Mm-hmm. Like they had, they had such a, a vision at some point. They had that early cinematic vision for how to tell a story in a short story. And then the patent companies were like, "What if we just stitch it together into a, a larger piece of film, which is presiding over the uh, that entry point for uh, when films would become actual features with Birth of a Nation." Sadly, um, so much focus on Birth of a Nation here. Do you want yeah. to give a defense or I think it's indefensible. I, I thought it would be defensible because I thought it was just like the studio guy was like buying into the bullshit. And then they were like, oh, they don't make, you know, the la- the best movie ever made has already been made is what they say in the car. I'm like, oh, fuck. Off. So so you won't you won't convince me, you, you, you won't catch me making a defense of birth of a nation in any sense. But I can I can mount an explanation here okay. for, its, for its purpose, its reason. And the idea behind it at the time, because Birth of a Nation certainly was, even in 1976, kind of seen as 
the birth of movies, the birth of Hollywood still. D.W. Mm -hmm. Griffith was being champion. He was the pioneer. He's the man who invented the close-up. He made feature films. He made the greatest spectacle ever made. And that was still all of the ideas surrounding him. And the mythos of him was so thoroughly built up and ingrained into Hollywood and its myth about itself that using it as this kind of narrative climax uh, for the stories of the Nickelodeons here made sense. It makes, and, and I feel like, at least in the terms of the context of the story, uh, looking at it for the impact it had at the time in 1915, because it did, it did have huge impact even then. Um, it makes sense for how it's, it's like, this is the evolution, this is the the signal, the new era changing here. The, our ways are, are being adapted into something so much grander than what we've been doing now. The problem comes from the way in which it contextualizes and ignores the, the larger aspects of birth of a nation um it doesn't have one bit of criticism about the um there's the there's the lousy production of the clansmen for one thing which is like they're developing it into oh shit we could tell all these plays like on a theater screen and that's like the development of the idea and i understand that it is like the debut of, of feature films and i understand like that was the reaction i just think like in the 70s what are you doing not commenting on the other parts oh again like like the revisionism of Griffith was not yet in swing by any means in the mm-hmm. 70s. It probably wasn't, it didn't start for probably another like 20 years or so where people were like, you know, there was other people who did Griffith's thing before he did, right? And he kind of just took credit for everything and everyone ran with it. It was anyway, just always shitty though. I mean, uh, it was, the, it was the never thing good. Is, the thing is, is that I think there was a way of presenting it in the film and signifying the importance and impact of Birth of a Nation without lionizing it in the process. That's, it really does lionize That's the big it. problem, is that yeah. there's a lengthy section of the film devoted to showing actual clips from Birth of a Nation and everyone ooing and aahing at it and talking about how great Griffith as a filmmaker was. There's a way of depicting its importance and its impact without, you know, like, enshrining him further in it. And again, like, by using specific clips of the film the not problematic parts of the film of course you know the, yeah. the tiny section in which it goes over the the civil war and not the parts with exceeding amounts of blackface and depictions of you know black characters you know mucking up in in the united states senate or people in you know blackface uh being portrayed as you know villainous you know uh opponents in the clansmen as uh vigilant you know like 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 mm-hmm. righteous vigilantes it's no, all of the birth of a nation stuff. <laughs> yeah, it is all the uh, civil war stuff. It is all about like the start of a thing, and and I understand how you could contextualize birth of a nation with what happened after the civil war and what happened at the start of movies. And I mean, yeah. I see the through lines. I just I would never frame it in that lionizing no, way. No, and, and you shouldn't. <laughs> Again, I see why it works in the context of the movie, but it takes uh, some ignorance of the other elements, some active ignorance on your own part to yeah. uh, uh, like let it slide just without any kind of criticism there. And it's and again, a shame. I, I, mean, I know why, and I know why it was in the case in the 70s where that yeah. was still a rhetoric around Gr- Griffith, but it definitely ages it poorly. And again, because... But what I think is worse is that the film invents a scene that has no historical foundation to have characters in blackface in the movie. Yeah, that's not great either. There's a whole scene that they invent for the characters for the film they're shooting to have an African wedding. And so they have a, a whole bunch of their characters in blackface for the sequence. And 
there's just no reason for it. It did not have to be that at all. Like you're just, you're making up a scene for characters to shoot for their movie, and yeah, that was a common thing that they did in the, the early teens. But you didn't have to do it. Yeah, <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't have to invent a blackface scene in the 1970s to do. Very unnecessary of him, but. Uh, shame because I think the rest of the movie is pretty good apart from those two aspects. I, yeah. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Yeah, I, I think it's enjoyable. I think it focuses less on the spirit of creativity than it could. Uh, it gets bogged down by a, a love triangle narrative between Burt Reynolds and it's, uh, um, Bogdanovich down, yeah. you could say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, uh, that feels very lackluster to me. Um, you know, you've got, uh, I think it was, it's uh, Jane Hitchcock, that's her name, mm -hmm. Jane Hitchcock is the female lead, and she's just such like a nothing presence to me, she doesn't do anything for it. Um, the, the, he re recycles the, uh, the, the bag mix-up from What's Up Doc for this right. as well, which I'm not sure if it's, a, it's, if it's a fun nod or like a lazy... Like, <laughs> I can't tell either. Element. It feels like both. <laughs> yeah, I'd say both. But uh, for the most part, it's it's really good. It's I like the uh, I like the silly stuff where he's like a where they get him on and he's getting drunk and they're like shooting out the camera legs. They're trying to shoot out the guy in the building. And I guess I guess this movie probably has more slapstick than the movies it's paying you know tribute <laughs> to. There's so much slapstick going on, especially in like the early acts where it's just you got the, all the people tumbling down the stairs. You've got yeah. You got Ryan uh, Ryan O'Neill running away from people and he does like the thing with the the teeter-totter you know plywood he gets his foot stuck in a a bucket yeah good stuff uh, yeah no and it's all good again usually i think when when bogdanovich is doing like classic style comedy he's really good at it he's really he nails it usually yeah um not not like a socially valuable movie by the end of it because we do say about the blackface and the and the birth of a nation lionizing but uh but it's it's also like it's a it's a it's a historical you know recreation right. of an era of movies a lot of people don't know about and and that's I think uh, also valuable in of itself problematic elements aside. Yeah, um, I wish there were other histories that we could talk about and explore other than like the birth of the nation part. But yeah, I, look, somebody make an Oscar Michaud biopic that would be interesting. Give me that. Let me see him making his his answer to birth of a nation with symbol of the unconquered you know somebody <laughs> lift up that voice and and get a depiction of that i i, I don't i don't want to hear any more about griffith the movie yeah. anymore he we, had, enough has been time. said uh the, my only solace is knowing that he died penniless and you know like like not as respected nobody would give him a job anymore that's good yeah <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, Griffith. <laughs> yeah, we're going to do a whole series on a uh, Griffith where we Griffith, just share. By the on way, him. next director who we're covering <laughs> for the show. The birth of a podcast will be <laughs> uh, alternative to the birth of a nation. Alternative to the right. Yes. Uh, next film. <laughs> where are we at with Pogodovich? <laughs> the next film, uh, the last film in this cycle was uh, Saint Jack. Saint Jack, which we uh, we watched together. Uh, I. I feel like this is almost like the end of the podcast, though, because it's like St. Jack is a very, very hard film to talk about. Yeah. Uh, I, I I wish I had more to say other than uh, a lot of things. It's um, incredibly well directed. It's it's 
it's very well uh it's very brisk very um charming very, very like 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 kind of like seductively shot in a way that's um j just has like a ton of momentum it just it never lets up in terms of pacing um but I, I can't tell you exactly what happens because it all goes by like it just really like it, it sweeps you up in this like like whirlwind and you just kind of fly through this this you know life livelihood of uh, uh pimping in, in singapore with ben gazara uh and all these kind of periphery characters and you just kind of go through as he he goes around and you know deals with gang members as well but also like helps out his friends has meeting with these other expatriates you know one of them's played by bogdanovich as well and kind of has these cool exchanges with him but what does it all mean what's what's this i kept thinking about um pta's um inherent vice not as a direct correlation but that obtuse like um there's not like the literal text there's like what you're watching and then there's the literal text and they don't like combine and make sense um and there's just the idea that the style and just kind of languishing but these characters like in this sense of place which is uh different than many films but it's really not focused on literality it's not what happens in the movie it's how you experience it and it has a like, really good sense of place too it was it was again like Bogdanovich broke with his typical, you know, form of filmmaking. He, you know, he went abroad and shot this in Singapore and he kind of shot it almost in a kind of guerrilla style. He intentionally fudged the, uh, the script that they were giving to the, you know, the, the Singapore government, like, because St. Jack was a notorious novel. It's time. funny because I don't know why, because it's so hard to follow. Like, I don't know. Well, I don't know the about of it. I think it's all the nudity and the, what is... Yeah, and 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 talking about it as kind of like this place to come as a hub of prostitution and such. I see. Uh, they were not very excited about that. They did not like that novel. I feel like that would be a good advertisement, but uh, but it's it, but it's funny because nowadays um, there's not a whole lot on the novel. There's not a whole lot on the movie. Uh, <laughs> there's half a paragraph. Pressed, it'd be very hard pressed to find an in-depth description of either on here because. Just nobody knows, I guess. There's Everyone half a paragraph on Wikipedia that we're reading over, yeah, and it just cuts out. Summary. Yeah, the whole Yeah. Because sometimes I'll go after watching a movie, I'll like, did, okay, did I get all the important information? I'll read the, the plot summary, you know, and I'm like, okay, I remember all those points, and it helps me connect the dots. Yeah. And it's not the case here. There's just Doesn't no, exist. In, <laughs> no information. And again, it's because it's part of a series of films of Bogdanovich's that are not well distributed, not well, you know, preserved, not well uh, spread about, you know, there's not a ton of information. It's not <laughs> so quite even, it's even not quite like, it. it's not quite like experimental, but it's kind of like each shot kind of follows the next and it feels like it's like such a steady buildup of collected shots and sense of place and characters existing somewhere, but it's really hard to read between the lines of what I can't tell you what the film's about yeah. or well, why. Watching watching it, it feels almost like it has the same feeling of watching a film that's all shot in like one location or you know mm -hmm. in, in one shot. Those those kind of experimental types, but it never you know like presents itself as that, and it certainly doesn't feel like that was Bogdanovich's attempt. It's not like he was 
trying to be Hitchcock making rope or something, you know. But you get the same effect somehow. It's interesting. Yeah, it's just it all, you know, because of the, the direction and the momentum maintained, really just everything bleeds into one right after the other. But in, in so doing, it feels like it really just like kind of obscures the structure of whatever story is present there. And so by the end, like when you get to the end, you're like, oh, OK, I guess this is the stopping point. I don't know <laughs> what's happened along the way. Like, like it's literally not just a case of I don't know what we've accomplished. It's literally like, I don't know what happened in this movie. <laughs> it this also is... that also happened in the middle. I thought this is a stopping point. Yeah. And you said 50 more minutes left. Yeah, this is the second time I've seen this movie. And the second viewing did not enlighten me anymore. Like this, like where I'm like, oh, I like things about At Long Last Love more the second time. I felt exactly the same about St. Jack watching it. I'm like, this is good. I like this movie. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> I don't think a third watch will enlighten you either. I don't think I, I don't, it. but I probably would watch it a third time is, is the thing because Ben Gazzara is so great. He's so charming as Jack Flowers. Uh, and, he, and he feels very genuine in the role. That's a big thing about his character here is that it doesn't feel like he's, you know, trading and, and helping out people and scratching backs to get ahead. Mm. He's doing it out of like the goodness of his heart. Like like when they talk about he's like an unscrupulous character with a heart of gold, it feels like a like a true embodiment of that. And, and you know, for anyone else who knows Gazar from his various other roles, uh, you know, they know just how compelling of a screen presence he can be. Mm -hmm. And St. Jack might be one of the, the best, if not the best, testaments of that. I agree with all that. Yeah. I, I like Bogdanovich casting himself as well. Again, it's a case where, you know, he really shows his own acting chops and how in all the other instances where he talked about casting himself, that probably would have ultimately been a good decision because he's He's always compelling on screen and he's able to embody a character, not just Bogdanovich, you know. The light TCN put on the uh, movie in their podcast about Bogdanovich also interested me. So uh, watching it with that context was helpful. Yeah. And again, it's a, it was an important chapter for him uh, personally as well, because it was, you know, for all intents and purposes, a creative triumph. People enjoyed it even though it didn't get a lot of distribution yeah uh and today people still like it and, and it felt like again after the slog of the previous three films that he was making a comeback mm -hmm. like he was set to really you know uh, strut into the 80s as his old self again you know full of confidence and you know secure relationships he just you know he, he broke up with sybil after this film because he uh cheated on her as he's prone to do <laughs> but you know he he really felt like he was you know making a new start for himself a new chapter in his life it really was opening up uh and and that's why what happens next is is just the most unexpected and horrific thing one could imagine. yeah yeah it's sad because end of a chapter as well as the start of a new one yeah for peter bogdanovich mm -hmm. well do you want to rank these um yeah. It yeah. seems pretty clear, but uh... I I don't know that it does. This this won't be interesting. Like whereas last time we were in very much agreement, we're gonna have some different opinions this time. I think the we'll only see. one we totally agree on is Saint Jack. So yeah, yeah, but it, where that one ends up it will be the weird thing. Because again, with Saint Jack, it's like I feel like it's a hard film to give a a, a number or a placement. Like I because 
again, it's it's a film that is like it's really enjoyable, but I don't know that it's you know great at the end of it all. Like because I don't walk away with anything other than thinking I was charmed for two hours. Yeah. Um, let's start with uh, Daisy Miller. We have a What's Up Doc, Paper Moon, The Last Picture Show, and Targets. I believe it's our order. Okay. For me, it's bottom. Uh, I'd put it above targets. I think targets has a little bit more to it. Again, I, I like all of the stuff that he gets to with uh, Karloff. You know, in particular, he gets a great performance from Karloff and himself. Lots of interesting exchanges there. Again, about the the closing of the the chapter of old Hollywood and the birth of the new. And the premise itself, I think, is really good. And it just doesn't capitalize on it fully. Um, Daisy Miller, I feel nothing during. I think it capitalizes fully on what it's doing though i think it's a complete movie and i don't think targets amounts to as much i'd also put it above last picture show but okay but, so you're, you're gonna make me have to take a, a hard defensive last picture show for a lot of these films upcoming i imagined here <laughs> i know i know you were pretty disillusioned with it after that first watch but man we, we can't put it all the way at the bottom there like that we're gonna get lynched <laughs> same with daisy miller um we just don't want that Daisy Miller fan base knocking at our door. I really like Sybil Shepherd in it. I think maybe it's the most I like her, even though she's very obnoxious. More than more than Last Picture Show. Of course, yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, I can't, I can't put it above Last Picture Show, but I'm, I'm potentially willing to concede targets. Well, I think about like the romance as like a mystery and how I'm kind of into that and. In a way, to bring up PTA again, I'm thinking about like Phantom Thread and uh, those kind of movies that I like. I like the um, I like the romantic 19th century, early 19th century movies about like uh, uh, I don't like them to be mannered. I kind of like them to be defiant about mannerism and um, getting around what what's expected of you in more formal societies. And I like what it's saying about Americans and uh, Europeans and expatriates at the time. Um, I enjoy the, I enjoy small things about it, like the castle and exploring Italy and the Colosseum. I like the sense of places that it has. Um, I like the parties, the diner culture, the characters are very vivid. Um, <laughs> her love interest is funny. Uh, the short Italian man who doesn't seem to have much to his name. He's a very curious character. Uh, I'll, I'll say one thing is that the Colosseum was an appealing thing to me. Not not as much as the sequence itself, but like this reminder of this idea that these places that we see as these grand monuments were also monuments in previous centuries. And mm -hmm. they were places people traveled to and explored. So so again, like it it just feels like a, like a dissonance in my mind, like trying to match up people, you know, with you know, 19th or 18th century sensibilities going and, and being in these places and the incongruity of the them, like, like seeing these people dressed <laughs> yes. up in these clothing in the, the, the Coliseum, it's like, oh, oh, that's really it's very appealing. Where e even though like people in jorts and with, you know, like, like click cameras are going to the Coliseum nowadays and shit. <laughs> and, and that's even more incongruous, but I mean, I'd wear jorts. Too. I'm a big jort supporter. All right. So like I said, I'll, I'll concede targets for you, but I think last picture show is, is still the, the, the better film. It's got a lot of, again, some very incredible 
performances in it, you know, from a, a, no, a number of actors, some really standout sequences that, you know, even despite some of the more mundane moments, you know, really cement in your brain. And I do think it's still more beautiful. Again, the, the, the black and white film uh, cinematography is still incredibly striking. Yeah, I don't find any moments in Daisy Miller where I'm especially bored. I think the first 10 minutes are the best it ever is, but I just, I mean, it, I, it's still was, like a 6 out of 10 for me. I'm not going I was, I was dreadfully bored throughout I can't the believe it. it, it <laughs> no, was, I can't. It was, it was a very empty experience for me. Again, everything bounced off. All of the stuff I extrapolated from it was, you know, like a post-exercise. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the characters and I enjoyed the, the verbal exchanges and uh, most of the comedy is in those exchanges, but uh, well done, Henry James adaptation. I could kind of go for. So it's fine. So, so where are we putting it? Uh, between last picture show and targets. Okay. Can we sign off on that? Yeah. yeah okay. I'll, I'll do that. So, at long last love. Uh, at the bottom. <laughs> yes. <laughs> See, I think this is better than last picture show now. <laughs> no. I won't even. I won't sign that. I mean, last picture show. Think about how great Last Picture Show is, David. <laughs> Some of Bogdanovich's most celebrated shots in that movie. <laughs> I, I I knew that wasn't going to sell, but I at least wanted to put it out there that I like more. I I love the the charm of it a lot. Uh, and again, I I made a, a a vigorous defense of it already earlier here. Yeah. In terms of it, it has it has good comedy in it. The production design is incredible. It's got you know some beautiful set decoration and costume design. Just the, the overall art direction is really impeccable. I think some of the best of the, the decade even. I did you know, scrub like, through it. I don't remember if I said, but I did scrub through it and thought it was very handsome and well-designed. And I, I did think the production was nice. And there were moments I liked it. That, like I said, four or five songs out of 16. Yeah. I like I, lo I like the way it's in it's in conversation with those films and its reference points while still making it distinctly original. I don't think it's always successful, obviously. I think it's very messy. It's very clunky. Uh, it's too indulgent. But yeah. uh, I, I love the, the vigor of it, and I love its audacity. Uh, and I'm just I'm very charmed by it. And the charm is strong enough to override a lot of negative sensibilities to a point where it's a film that I can see myself returning to in a number of times and again it, i feel it's very distinctive in what it is it, it, you know at, at no point am i ever like unamused by it you know even when it's falling on its face it's doing so with you know enthusiasm i think you appreciate it more than i appreciate daisy miller at the very least um yeah i i this this viewing of it gave me a very strong affection for it that I was not expecting. I knew I knew I liked it when I saw it originally, and I knew I liked its individuality, but uh, now, now I feel like a defender of the film. Would you be fine with that between Last Picture Show and Daisy Miller? Yeah, I think that's, that's more than acceptable. At Long Last Love, because I think that's the right place for it. I want to watch it again one day, watch one day, the Blu-ray. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to watch it right immediately. <laughs> it's not like, a oh, you... you you had an entirely wrong experience. You need to rectify this. Yeah, uh, it's not going to fix my overall yeah. complaints, but uh, no. <laughs> I, I do. Uh, I am charmed by some of it, so I, yeah. I'm uh, willing to concede. I, I think the bad elements are surprisingly bad on a first watch. <laughs> yeah, like, they are. You hear about it. You hear, oh, Burt Reynolds can't sing, and you're like, okay, you know, he can't. Sure. Sing, no, it's yeah. it's it's pretty bad. It, it'll take you out of the movie, but <laughs> once you get once you accept it and once you get used to it. There's a lot of other things to really appreciate. 
I wonder if our next one will be hardest to place. Would would you say Nickelodeon's difficult? I think we'll have an easy enough time. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess that you want to put it above Last Picture Show, below Paper Moon. I'd put it below Last Picture Show. Where? Oh, okay. I'm surprised. I'd put it um, below. I'd put it around Daisy Miller, either above or below Daisy Miller. You put it so you put it below at Long Last Love. Just because hey, that, of what how you stuff really sound okay. Yeah, the birth of the nation and the the um, black face of it all is hard for me to overcome. Then no, okay, that's uh, I'm I'm surprised by that because your your initial expression of enjoyment seemed to you know indicate something more so. But uh, I I think we're on the same page then uh, okay. because again I think the film is generally like like. Uh, it, it has a good theme to it, but I don't think it makes good on it all the way through. Um, you know, I think it's last half, you know, it kind of loses the energy and enthusiasm for the medium that it has earlier yeah. on. And again, like, like the unsavory, as, uh, unsavory aspects are really off-putting. Um, but for, for what it is, again, it's, it's not a train wreck. You know, it's, no. it's not a disaster by by any means. And the fun parts are so fun. Like, I I'm, I really enjoy the way it pays homage to the old movies and the yeah. way it approaches them and handles it. Yeah, I, I think it, and again, comedy, really good throughout. It's a comedy movie. Really funny. Which is, is great at doing comedy. Um, And it, it's good chronicle. I think it's good, you know, kind of historical record. Uh, despite the forwarding of the Griffith narrative and such. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't like Burt Reynolds as much here as I do in Long Last Love, though. Um, though I do think he's still good. Do you prefer him in, in one or the other? I think that's acceptable. I could go either way. A coin flip yeah. for me, which yeah, I yeah. prefer. He's good in both, but I, I, I kind of like the interesting departure he has to make for Long Last Love. That's but, at least so- more distinct in his career, yeah. Yeah, again, it's 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 surprising to see him there. Not necessarily for good reasons, but no, <laughs> he does he does good when he's not singing. And everyone likes Burt Reynolds, right? So I, I like so. Burt Reynolds. I think so. I, I, don't, I don't, think, don't know if there's a huge controversy. Yeah, I'll, I'll I, I don't go. think PTA likes Burt Reynolds anymore, or at least the other okay. way around. <laughs> they they didn't have a good time on Boogie Nights. That makes me very sad. Yeah, but you know he's he's still really great. So are are we? You were saying you wanted to put this below in Long Last Love and below. Daisy Miller? Uh, you want to go below? Did, did you like Daisy Miller? Wait, more do you me? like this more than Targets? Yes. You do. Okay. I like this more than Targets. I do like too. More than Daisy Miller. I don't like it more than Daisy Miller, but um, <laughs> but I'm willing to also compromise uh, because okay. I think I think a place between at Long Last Love and Daisy Miller makes the most sense for it. Sure, I'll, I will. I will take that. Okay, so we have a. Uh, What's up, Doc? Paper Moon, the last picture show at Long Last Love. Um, Nickelodeon, Daisy Miller, and Targets is our current list with uh, St. Jack. This will be the most fun for me. <laughs> yeah, uh, so I I want to hear where, where you would put it, personally. Do you, do you want to know? I, I'd put it between Paper Moon and Last Picture Show. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I figured. You really liked St. Jack. And I loved I, it. I loved watching it. <laughs> I love living in this world. I like I think, being there. I think that's absolutely terrific. Um, and and I wish I did love it as much as that. Like I wish I could look <laughs> past by just how like confused I am by it because I do really like it. I like it a lot. Um, 
and, and I wish it had more substance um, because it's so well done. It's a case where the film, I, I feel like, is so much stronger than the material. But the material is also an important facet of the film's strength in terms of like the, the writing, the dialogue exchanges and stuff. But like just narratively, structurally, it, it just feels entirely inconsequential. But it's a better directed film than I would say all of the other ones we've discussed today. Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd agree fully. I think it's very respectable. Um, nearing an 8 out of 10 for me, but it's like a high 7 out of 10. Mm -hmm. uh, I think... Let's see here. I, I think Last Picture Show is is better made in, in some respects. Again, like, the certain scenes stand out very, you know, highly to me. You know, the, the, uh, the cinematography is still astounding. The... There are very few scenes in St. Jack that stand out. I am thinking now, like, I, these ones did not stick in my memory after the first viewing, but they do now, a day after seeing the film, and that's mm -hmm. the, the Goldfinger strip tease, which I think is very well done and very memorable. And uh, there's a great exchange with Bogdanovich, um, right, where he talks about uh, General Hooker and uh, getting you know, women for the soldiers with Lincoln's approval. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, a, a significant scene and I think he's really great in it. And I think, again, Ben Gazzara is just stunning throughout. So you you could convince me putting it above Picture Show, but... Because it's a better movie. <laughs> I, I think it's a better directed movie. I don't know if it's better, but uh, for, for this, certainly, if you consider it, I think... I don't... Especially, especially with, with how much you gave me with Long Last Love here, I think that's... Why do you think I gave better. it to you, though? I, I'm, I'm only manipulating the system so I can work with St. <laughs> Jack. <laughs> I don't care about Daisy Miller that much. I'm just... Yeah. Uh, I had to uphold Daisy Miller as my uh, special cow, my sacred cow, so that when we get to St. Jack, I could uh, I could have allowed you two movies above <laughs> Daisy Miller, and now I that's... can manipulate this. I, I like how unobjective this is. It's just a series of exchanges between co-hosts. Wouldn't it be funny, though, if we put uh, What's Up, Doc, Paper Moon, St. Jack, and those just ended up being his three best films? Wouldn't that be amusing? I mean, with what's on the horizon, unless the next film really manages to impress... Um, That's very possible, I think. Uh, I, I don't know. There, there is one other film I know for sure that I like more than St. Jack, at least coming up, so... And and well, I think you might like it too. Uh, it, it'll be interesting. That's in the next block. But if we if we do find out that a saintly switch is a sequel, then I'm gonna lose <laughs> my mind. <laughs> Bing Zara pops up there again. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I will I will concede that since okay. Were, yeah, no, since we're generally in agreement about Saint Jack, it's a it's a very well made movie that I wish I could articulate about better. Uh, just just see it. If you're listening, just just see it because it's very difficult to describe what some of the best movies it. are. Like some of my favorite movies are just experiential things that, like Licorice Pizza this last year. Like I was on uh, Stephen and uh, Vaughn's podcast, and I was just defending it, and they're like, "Well, it doesn't mean anything. Like these are just like fragments of life." And I'm like, "That's what I like." Right, right, and, and I, I'm not saying as well that a film can't be that because there are certainly so many films that are great, just like pictures just little portraits snapshots of yeah. you know a time and place and stuff and especially for the you know specific locale as well that saint jack you know gets to depict that's a very special element of it um 
But it just, again, it, it goes by so much so that I have a hard time even telling you the literal things that happen, not just what it means. It reminded me so much of when we did the To Have and Have Not podcast, of course, Bogdanovich being like a Hoxian student. We were like, yeah, this movie just kind of goes like, I mean, it's it's kind of about the sense of place and where you are and um, the loose adaptation of a Hemingway and just kind of like shaping it into your own directorial vision. That's I think what, that's a that's a perfect example, and Bogdanovich would actually be so elated to have that comparison with with Hawks there, and in that vein, I think yeah, you're right because it, it's also you know in the same way that Hawks was just unconcerned with what's happening, willing to cut scenes that were yeah. you know integral to plot to further the 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 charm and charisma of of the film, and and I think Saint Jack may be one of the the ultimate examples of that. It's it's a movie that I cannot. <laughs> describe to you what happens in any capacity but i can i only have positive things to say <laughs> i looked down this list it is the movie that makes me third most happy i think it it brings me joy it, it describes what i like about cinema most so i don't i don't really care about plot ultimately so um that ability to snip and present your own directorial vision over a sense of pacing and any kind of happening in the film that that matters to me mm-hmm. i'm happy with it in third place I yeah I think it's fair uh, I and I and I think the people who appreciate both Saint Jack and Last Picture Show wouldn't be that upset by by having them in in different places like that uh, and, I, just, I just wish I was better at explaining why it deserves that spot and if they are I certainly hope they let us know yeah yeah please uh leave comments reviews angry letters in the post. Whatever you can to keep in contact with the Twin Geeks. You can join our Discord server and tell us personally. <laughs> yeah, please do. Uh, uh, do we have anything to plug? We have other shows. Yeah, we have a number of other shows. Um, who, who's who's up first? Who's getting who's getting recommended first this week? Who's on first? Uh, who's on first is uh, uh, yeah, I'm thinking it's spoiling think things. A, a comedy routine. From- <laughs> Yeah, I'm thinking of spoiling things. Uh, I'll be on with Licorice Pizza next week, I believe. So next that'll week. be fun. Next week or the week after. But uh, also ranking the monsters. Still have a couple things to do there. 808s and pod breaks. Have an episode to edit. Uh, Daydream cast coming back. A lot of things in flux. Uh, don't let the motor cast get you. We have an episode recorded. Uh, a lot of things in the air right now. So who knows when any of them come out? But uh, <laughs> yeah. I was gonna, I think we're the only ones on it constant schedule at the moment yeah. so at least you got that to look forward to yeah uh look forward to us on a consistent schedule and hopefully more of everything else once uh we're all living crazy lives everything's uh coming back in some way or another and yeah um i've been uh approved for the banana meter i guess i could finally plug that um, that's that's good yeah. yeah it's like it's like rotten tomatoes but better hopefully why would you make your uh your whole name about movies being bad why not be an optimist and talk about you know bananas uh why not go bananas for the movies so that's like a three-tiered system where you're looking at like a oh we've gone bananas uh this is a, a mild banana i don't know what they call it and then there's like this spoiled wow. bananas <laughs> <laughs> and i think it'll be a uh, uh fun um i'm looking forward to reviewing some things that exist there they're starting very slow with only a few movies so uh nothing i'm reviewing is even categorized yet but uh it will be. So looking forward to that. Hope so. Um, you got anything to say about the Oscar nominations? No. Do you? No, I, I didn't watch them. So. 
I've, you didn't I've, see any movies this no, year that not, you would I, qualify. Of all of the movies that are nominated for Oscars, even in the visual effects categories and shit, I haven't seen a one. I have my... Well, I have two horses in the race, right? I have Power of the Dog, which is a beloved deconstructive Western done by Jane Campion, who I uh, appreciate very much well, based on a book I really like. to be nominated twice, twice. for a directing yeah. Oscar now. That's fantastic. A, a fantastic movie. I love the Westerns. I love the modern Westerns. I love that women are uh, controlling the conversation around modern Westerns, where it's particularly been like a genre based on men and our interests. I think it's very interesting that Kelly Riker and Jane Campion are the um, pioneers of the new Western. I think that's fantastic. Best place they could possibly be. Uh, are, best are hands all, for them. Are all Westerns now having to be having an animal in the name? Like I hope so. Now, power the dog. <laughs> yeah, but this one about high-powered dogs, very fun. <laughs> think about it, you got lots of dances with wolves, lonesome dove. I was very uh, hesitant when I picked oh. up the book and it was just like about this guy like clipping like the testicles off a cow or something. I was like, I don't know if I'll get into this, but uh, and the movie's very different. It's almost like a, a, it stands alongside the book. It does some very different things. So really that, appreciate that movie. That totally reminded me now that I said that and actually I can wrap it back around to Bogdanovich. Do Because <laughs> Bogdanovich wrote a Western. Oh, which one? Lonesome Dove. Lonesome he, Dove, okay. He contributed with Larry McMurtry who wrote uh, last picture show to write Lonesome Duck and they, and they were going to make it a movie at first but they didn't like right around this this time period but they ended up making it into a, a novel instead and then now it's revered as one of the great uh, modern you know western novels uh, it's, it's not been it's made a, been made into a TV series before but not a movie yeah think. there's like a mini series that's very popular right yeah but it's a yeah it's it's a really a beloved uh, book uh, among uh, western you know, novel aficionados, and uh, yeah, Bogdanovich had a hand in it. So it's always been on my to-do list. So I'll get to Lonesome Dove one day. Um, uh, also, Licorice Pizza, uh, my favorite film of last year, actually got a Best Picture nomination after kind of suffering through a pretty rough run at the um, guilds. I don't think it was very well recognized as it well as it could have been through all the guilds. Besides, like you know, like Directors Guild, they love PTA there, um, but PTA not always recognized at the Oscars and ways i think he should be so I'm, I'm still holding up for a win we'll see where it goes he's got some stiff competition this year this actually looks like a pretty good register yeah so. i i think going i think expanding to 10 films was a very wise thing to do because even if i don't like three of them which is like uh belfast don't look up and king richard i think the other seven are pretty good how did, how did some of those make the i don't know okay, so, i don't know so many people in the industry apparently like don't look up i have no clue why so I get it that it's a producer's award. This is a big ensemble movie. Some of them are like, I want to work with these people. I want to work with Leonardo DiCaprio and this huge cast of people. Um, and of course, yeah, I mean, I, I give it a three out of 10. So I'm, I'm not going to try to justify it. I don't know inclusion. anyone. I don't know anyone within our circle, you know, <laughs> who likes it, who, who even can stand the film. You know, I've only met two critics who love the movie, and I, I haven't figured it out. All right, I feel like we've gotten thoroughly off topic here. So, yeah, um, that was our Oscar special. Yeah, so uh, that's all we have to say on that. Uh, join us again next week for more Bogdanovich films. Uh, the next block of the 1980s. Birth of a podcast. Thanks so much, Dave. Thank you. Thank you.
Conversations and I post them online for entertainment. It's nice to know. At least you listen to the show because it's quite the possibility that nobody is listening to me in this modern world. Things have changed. Everybody's entertaining. Who's being entertained? Thank you for listening. Yeah.